Today is Selection Sunday. Also, St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day to all of you out there. Um, I'm not wearing any green despite being, uh, I don't know, some percentage Irish. Uh, but we're not here to talk about how the snakes were um, run out of Ireland. We're here to talk about some really bad terminology that's going on in college basketball. Uh, we're going to talk about one at a time. But the first term that I want to talk about is one I've used a lot and I'm vic- as guilty as anyone is wrong side of the bubble. So uh, the bubble... <laughs> your bubble teams. Uh, a bubble is something that you're on because you're uh, tenuously trying to get in the tournament. It's like not very secure. A bubble can easily burst. You're either uh, off the bubble or you're on the bubble. You're, you're not on the wrong side of the bubble. What do you think, Tom? I think you're right. The whole idea is that it can go poof at any time. Like when we were little kids and we blew those bubbles, they would pop eventually. If you blew them too big, they'd pop. Just that. And the other thing, while we're on the bubble, is I've seen someone talk about the bubble boiling, like it's coming from like a, your pasta spaghetti pot. No, that's not what it is. It's just, it could burst. That's it. That's the whole analogy. There's no two sides. It's not about boiling water. It's from bubbles in the park. You see these little kids blow around. They could pop at any time, and then you're in the NIT. Mm-hmm. The, the other item that I want to talk about is maybe a little bit more uh, philosophical, <laughs> is the fact that in Division One we have high majors, we have mid-major conferences, and we have low-major conferences, which implies that there are no non-major conferences in Division One. Is that the is that, is that mean that only non-major conferences are in Division Two? To me, like the SWAC and the MEAC, and you know the American East, these are small conferences. You don't have to call them minor, but you can call them small conferences. The mid-majors are those leagues that are almost always competing for more than one NCAA tournament bid. I don't think low-major should be a term at all. No. The minors. It's just they, they're scared. People are scared to call these leagues something other than major. And so they come up with this low major thing, which sounds less pejorative. But let's be honest. Even mid-major, you could argue, is a little controversial. You're like, you're next best. But no one wants to call them that, so that's where we are. But not great. I mean, in fairness, the uh, the teams in the minor conferences in college basketball are getting paid about as much. The players are getting paid about as much as the minor leaguers in baseball. So... Uh, it, maybe it's an appropriate term to call them both minors. Not touching that one. <laughs> Double bonus the rest of the way. Double two bonus as well. Right, two free throws. Both teams will be on the double bonus, so we'll have two the rest of the way. Welcome to episode 21 of the Double Bonus Podcast. Along with Brendan DeRocher, I'm Tom Borston. As Brendan mentioned, we are recording this on Selection Sunday, three hours right now and 49 minutes before the bracket unveil on national television. We're going to keep this to 40 minutes, no overtime. Uh, A little special conference tournament recap and some philosophical talk, not about linguistics, but about the bubble, number one versus number two seeds, how much it matters and other things like that. We'll maybe touch on my trip to Spain, which prevented me from watching a large portion of the good events of the college basketball season of the last week. But Brendan, I know you've watched a lot. Uh, where do you want to start as far as the conference tournament goes? Do we go Zion or we go somewhere else? Um, I'm going to start with my Thursday night. Okay, good. Just, just a, you know, my personal experience at Madison Square Garden Thursday night. I went to the biggest tournament uh, as I try to do at least one session every year. Uh, went with a couple of your current coworkers, my former coworkers, to watch uh, St. John's Marquette and um, Georgetown Seton Hall. It seemed like a pretty good 
slate. You know, you had a couple of local teams. You had Georgetown, Patrick Ewing in the building. You had a really exciting Marquette team with the Player of the Year. Uh, as it turned out, both games were utter blowouts. Um, the 32-point win by Marquette was the tied for the sixth largest uh, victory in Big East tournament history. And the second game was so much better that I spent much of it looking up all the previous conference tournaments in the Big East to see which the other five games were that were bigger <laughs> blowouts. Um, I found that there, it, the uh, I believe Georgetown won by 16 or 17. Sorry, Seton Hall won by 16 or 17. Trey Morning was playing way too many minutes for Georgetown. Um, I don't know what was going on there. And then Josh LeBlanc got hurt. Hopefully he's not hurt seriously for Georgetown. There were two very good performances. Um, we had... A record-setting first half by Miles Powell for Seton Hall scored 29 points, uh, the most points ever scored in the first half of a, um, a Big East tournament game, breaking Doug McDermott's record of 27. I think he might have been there for that. I was, I was definitely there for the Creighton game in 2014. We did it against DePaul. Um, and Marcus Howard had a big game in the first game for Marquette. Um, I was there. Yeah. So the, the scores... A combined margin for those two games, the uh, the two games I saw was something like forty eight or forty nine. It was sixteen um, but for I did see, Yeah, so forty eight, uh, which for a while it looked like they had a shot to be the biggest combined blowouts of any session in Big East history, tournament history because of the twenty five point game at half. But um, a, a previous session where Villanova played Marquette and won by forty one, and Providence played St. John's and won by. 17. Oh, no, I think it was 37 and 17. So 54 is the record uh, to break if anyone wants to have the biggest blowout in uh, Big East Tournament history. But the larger point was, as, as the second game was starting, or um, maybe halfway through the first half, the I, I looked up the Duke score against uh, Syracuse. And also, I was watching with uh, with one of the people with, that was I was there with the Texas Tech-West Virginia game, which was happening um, in that early session on that night where Washington was up by 16. Texas Tech came back to the lead, and then Washington ended up winning and knocking out Texas Tech, the number two seed and uh, number two pick in our major conference tournament draft. Um, I looked it up, and it was Zion was 7 for 7 for 15 points with five steals and seven rebounds with, like, six minutes left in the first half. (laughs) And, I mean, uh, I think I'm not a big fan of hype. Usually I, I react very poorly to hype and go the other way, but... Zion Williamson is ridiculous, and he's amazing, and I do think that Duke is much closer to being a one-man team than people actually think. Um, R.J. Barrett's great, and Trey Jones is great, and et cetera. There are other good players on the team, but without Zion Williamson, they are like the 15th best team in the country, I would say. With Zion Williamson, they are probably the best. I'll take. So who is like right around them in the 15th best team in the country? Because right now in... Ken Palm, Auburn is 15th, and they beat Auburn yeah, by eight I, with Zion back in uh, November, Christmas, Thanksgiving week. So yeah, I'd say Auburn, Kansas. Um, I mean, yeah. Wisconsin. Huh. Like with, I mean, honestly, if Wisconsin played Duke without Zion Williamson, or Houston played Duke without Zion Williamson, would you really pick a neutral court Duke to win? I don't think I would. Yeah, I knew Wisconsin. I think there are two Wisconsin. things here with Duke. One is like what they are without Zion Williamson. And then I think what they should be without Zion Williamson. Like, you could argue that they should be better than the 15th best team in the country without Zion Williamson. But you could also argue, as you have pretty persuasively, I would say, that they are about the 15th best team in the country without Zion Williamson. Of course, they shouldn't be that low, but that's just a credit to how good he is and a credit to uh, statement on just like the inconsistencies of the other highly touted 
uh, top draft picks, future draft picks on that team. Yeah, our friend Lucas uh, messaged me yesterday. He's a more of an NBA guy, but he follows the top prospects, and he'll follow. You know, we both went to Northwestern, so he'll follow some Big Ten basketball. But he said, in San Vicini's most recent, um, Tim Vicini of the Athletic, their kind of NBA draft guru and college basketball kind of national writer, he had um, uh, Cam Reddish still as like the fourth or fifth guy on his board, and he asked the question, has a player been drafted. When's the last time a player drafted that high who had that this bad of stats? Um, and you look at his comps. Um, all of his comps are guys who ended up being drafted in the first round. Maybe not out of, as freshmen, um, but they were drafted in the first round. But they were drafted below where Cam Reddish is selected is prepared to go. Xavier Henry, the Kansas guy, Harrison Barnes of North Carolina. Uh, actually, now Luol Deng is on there. It was someone different before before yesterday's game against Florida State. Luol Deng of Duke, Kyle Singler of Duke, and Malachi Richardson of Syracuse. Um, obviously, some of those guys, most of those guys did not go pro after the freshman year, except for Xavier Henry. Um, but his O rating now is up to 95, which is just not good. I mean, the other guys have better O ratings than him. He's been inefficient. He had a good game yesterday where he made his free throws, but he was only two for eight from the field. Um he made a huge three late in the game, or a relatively big three late in the game. It wasn't that close. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Duke. I'm sure we're talking about it a lot in our NCAA tournament preview and throughout the tournament as long as they stay in. Um, but also that night, prior to – also on Friday night, Zion had the game-winning shot against North Carolina in a great game. Uh, Virginia fell earlier to Florida State. Um, and we had – so <laughs> – North Carolina Duke, when that game was going on, everyone's like, oh, man, we need UNC Duke part four in the final four. The championship game, these two teams are amazing. It's ridiculous how good they are. This game is awesome. And people forget that the first two games were terrible. I know Zion didn't play, but, like, they act like UNC Duke three was, like, the third part of, like, a great trilogy. But if the first two games were movies, they wouldn't have made a third. It might have. It depends on who's back in it. But yes, it hasn't been a compelling series. It was a great game. And I think there were I think you could have two nondescript Duke North Carolina teams if they met in the NCAA tournament for the first time in their history, that would be amazing. And this one is a compelling I think both teams are top five teams, obviously, so we have a situation where it would be great. But yes, we don't need to it's nothing nothing uh, you could argue that Tennessee Kentucky have played sorry, yeah, Tennessee Kentucky have played more compelling games this year uh, than North Carolina Duke so far. Yeah, those two games also were Blowout, kind of yes, lopsided. But yeah. Blowouts, but there's, you know, yeah. I don't know. Um, I think that, yeah. yeah. It would be great to have Duke in North Carolina in the Final Four. But we don't need it. The sport doesn't need it. Yeah, well. In the Big East, we had an interesting night on Friday night. We're kind of going through the weekend game. We, we didn't, we'll get to St. Mary's and Gonzaga. We'll get to some other stuff, too, but... Uh, I went to the games Thursday night. I did not go to the games Friday night. I think I made a bad decision because Friday night, Xavier and um, Villanova went to overtime before Xavier won by four. It was very much back and forth. Xavier had a shot to win at the buzzer. Uh, they were up by seven with four minutes to go when Villanova came back and won. Um, and then in the second game was just a weird, weird game. Um, there were, I think someone said there were eight technical fouls called in the Seton Hall Marquette game. Um, and it, um, I, th- I think that we were 85 free throws attempted. I think that's the right number. Oh, 85 free throws. Uh, 
Um, the game lasted about seven hours. It was like about as long as Game Three of the World Series. Uh, <laughs> James Breeding had more time on TV than Marcus Howard. At one point, uh, Miles Powell, Seton Hall's best player, thought he was ejected. He went to the the locker room, and they had to send an assistant coach or a manager back in there to get him because he wasn't ejected. Because Sandro Mom, there was so there's a play in the second half. It was a close game. Miles Powell drives to the to the basket. He gets fouled pretty hard by Sakar Anum. And, and as he after he got fouled, he kind of got pushed fairly gently, I thought, by Theo John. I mean, Theo John's a big, strong guy. I'm sure it, it didn't feel that gentle. He landed hard. You could see his neck kind of snap. Uh, Miles Powell landed hard. You could see his neck kind of snap back. He got up and went at uh, Theo John and was held off. So, But somehow, in that, both Anum and Theo John were ejected. Mama Kalashvili came to Powell's defense from Seton Hall. He was ejected. And Miles Powell got a technical, but was not ejected. But at first, they thought he was ejected. So um, Marquette was down, multiple starters. Seton Hall was down. Mamo Kalashvili, and um, and Seton Hall ended up coming back because at that point they were down by a few points, um, and then they finished pretty strong. Uh, but it was a it was a really hard watch. It was interesting. It was like compelling in its um, like drama, but it was really bad TV. Yeah, did not watch that. I was asleep in Spain. But 85 free throws, you're correct, and eight technicals. And none on a coach, just all on players. It was, yeah, it seems like it was nuts. And, you know, this is the type of game where you say people lost control, but I think this one, it seemed like from watching, just, I didn't watch it live, but just from watching it, the, the officials did not really manage it well and then may have overreacted to certain things as the game yeah, went there was Yeah, there was a late tech in Quincy McKnight that was a total overreaction by James Breeding. I do wonder with Stu Jackson, the um, kind of, person who's directing operations for basketball in the Big East, what's going to happen this offseason. It's the third time we've had one of these, I wouldn't call it a black eye, but just like a bad look. We had in the very beginning of the season a bad inadvertent whistle that really cost St. John's a game against Seton Hall uh, on uh, December 30th, I believe. And then we had the Marquette um, Creighton game where Sam Hauser was clearly still holding onto the ball when his shot went up. Um, but it was ca- it counted, and then uh, Seton Hall ended up. Uh, Marquette ended up winning in, in, in overtime. So the irony is that both Marquette and Seton Hall benefited from bad officiating, and they got really bad officiating when they played each other in the semifinals of the Big, Te- Big East tournament. Yeah, and the SEC had a controversial uh, refereeing as well, and it led to a referee suspension. So is that in the Auburn Florida game? Was that it was that the uh, Tennessee LSU game, I believe. Oh, okay. I know in the Auburn-Florida game in the SEC semifinals, Auburn was trying to foul down the stretch of the last seconds, actually up three. Um, and they looked like they gave a foul, but ultimately they called it not a foul. Um, or tr- It was not called a foul. And it could have been called a foul while shooting because Florida player went up for the shot um, and they ended up calling nothing, and then the game was over. And oh, Auburn this was now... Yeah. yeah, they're up uh, 20. I was I misread this. This is about a uh, referee posting a social media post that was suspended. So, uh, yeah. Hasn't been the best year for college basketball officiating. As Brendan, you once said on Valentine's Day, I believe 2014, Columbia-Harvard. It's a hard job. It's not that hard. Yeah. So That was not a happy Valentine's Day for uh, Coach Kyle Smith, no. then of Columbia, now of USF. Nor for Alex Rosenberg, who was called for a phantom charge. Uh, late in the game. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, memories. Uh, let's, so <laughs> just to run through, in case you, uh, you don't know who won the various uh, major conference tournaments, Villanova won his third straight Big East tournament, fourth in six years. Um, a down Villanova team was able to do the double title, which was imp- is impressive, but, but also speaks to the Big East not being as good this year. Um, the ACC, Duke knocked off Florida State for the title. Um, Duke... Uh, yeah, I mean Zion Williams was ridiculous. He was he had this amazing pass in, the, in on Saturday night for a layup to Trey Jones. In the Big Twelve, we saw Iowa State upset first Kansas State without Dean, Dean Wade, who may have a fairly serious injury, and then beat Kansas, who was the beneficiary of Texas Tech losing to West Virginia earlier, um, to win the Big Twelve title and not a very close game. We had in the Pac-12 a bid thief, Oregon behind Peyton Pritchard and also a lot of Bill Walton bluster uh, knocked off a, a somnambulant uh, Washington team for, for a 20-point win uh, in Vegas. And then the other two are still being competed. Auburn is – they basically went the whole season, Auburn, without beating anyone good, and they've beaten, like, everyone good in the last two weeks, including um, in, they're now up by 20-plus points against Tennessee um, in the second half of the SEC championship game in Nashville. Um, and the last major conference one we have coming up will be a battle of Michigan between Michigan and Michigan State in Chicago, which will be the, basically the last um, buzzer probably before the selection show begins. Any thoughts in general on those you want to hit on? I think everyone's who was back in Auburn from the start of the season, including me, is finally having to see him get going here. They're going to win the SEC championship. They have four A wins this year, and they're all since March uh, 2nd. That's pretty crazy, and they had lost their first one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight games. So credit to them. Uh, maybe they're finding their groove. Of course, this is the, but this is also a classic team. Everyone's like, oh, Auburn's finally found it, then they're going to go out in the second round. So I'm not quite sure. Cough, here. Iowa State, cough. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, don't overrate these conference tournament um, wins to a certain extent. I think the Texas Tech loss to West Virginia was very disappointing. Uh, for them, it killed a lot of their momentum. It probably raised a lot of questions in uh, some people's mind about them. I thought that Florida is going to sna- now obviously get into the uh, NCAA tournament um, with their win in the SEC tournament. Um, so that's kind of a team over LSU, which obviously has some problems with their coach. Uh, some some problems, you know. Uh, and the other takeaway from the conference tournament, uh, obviously Duke, we talked about just how different they are without Zion Williamson. And maybe Virginia gets their loss out of the system uh, with that loss to Florida State in the semifinals. Maybe they, because they're still my pick to, uh, it's still my the team I'm rooting for after Kansas to win the national title. So hopefully they get their loss out of the system and can just move move forward nicely in the NCAA tournament. But they're going to have their doubters for sure. It's interesting, you know, Virginia, Gonzaga, and Texas Tech, I kind of put in one kind of weird category of teams that, Aren't from aren't like traditional powers who are always somewhat doubted because either their style or their history, and they all took uh, losses. Uh, somewhat, I mean, Virginia's wasn't a bad loss to Florida State, but Gonzaga losing to St. Mary's and and Texas Tech losing to West Virginia was um, were pretty rough losses for those teams, and it kind of just it it sows the seed of doubt that people are they're kind of prone it's confirmation bias they're prone to believe in duke and unc and kentucky and they're prone to doubt teams like gonzaga and virginia and texas tech and they got ammunition for that this week yeah i mean well let's talk about this gonzaga loss because it was atrocious like it wasn't so much that they lost to st mary's which is really they shouldn't have lost but there's no shame necessarily in that but to play as poorly as they did offensive team as good as gonzaga just looked totally lost offensively against 
uh, St. Mary's, just 0. 0.77 or 0. 0.78 points per possession, depending on how you measure it. Just, you know, shooting two of 17 from three, which obviously has a huge um, role in that. But this is this is a scary thing to see Gonzaga play this poorly offensively because they're one of the best offensive teams in the country um, and they just really stunk it up. Now, is it all threes? Is it other stuff? They're the first-ranked team in offensive efficiency uh, on Ken Palm. They had, you know, lot, not lost since December 15th to Carolina. Um, they're now 30-3. and three. Um, Personally, I think they'll be fine and obviously be a one... I think they'll still be a one seed and still be a favorite to reach the Final Four out west, but um, it's just disheartening to see... A little disconcerting, I should say, to see a team lose this by just playing this poorly. A team that had played so well and just could come out and just out of nowhere, really, just lay a complete egg offensively. Yeah, I looked up um, some St. Mary's stats, uh, stats from that game. Um, Gonzaga's .777 points per possession um, is its third war- worst offensive performance of the Ken Palm era, which runs from 2001-2002 since to now. It was the worst since they lost by 35 to Duke in December 2009. Um, in that game, uh, St. Mary's finally passed 50% chance to win per Ken Pomeroy when Jordan Ford hit a three-pointer uh, at the under eight, uh, right around the under eight timeout to give St. Mary's a seven-point lead. And Gonzaga scored just eight points in its next in its final 17 possessions. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is Josh Perkins. Um, Josh Perkins is the kind of, like, glue point guard that everyone seems to love, but sometimes, athletically, and not that uh, Jordan Ford or, or the St. Mary's guards are, like, particularly athletic, but sometimes he doesn't play well, and um, you wonder if he runs up against Ashton Hagens or if he runs up against Trey Jones, whether he'll have similar problems. Um, People, they start, the narrative started that night about his poor performances in big games more generally. Um, he was not great uh, against Florida State in their loss last year. He, uh, it wasn't terrible, but he was kind of a, just a non-factor. Um, the previous year in South Carolina, he was totally fine when, when they lost in the championship game. Um, he was not good in the semifinal against South Carolina, uh, a good defensive team there. Um, so I don't know. Um, that, that is one concern. They did get Killian Tilly back, so they should be deeper. Uh, he played and played pretty well, uh, but he was on the floor late because they can't play their best. F- if you think Killian Tilly is one of their best five players, and obviously he's Priest is an All-American candidate, um, they can't really play their best five players at the same time because Brandon Clark, Rui Hachimur, and Killian Tilly can't play together. And so, I mean, that doesn't, it's not the end of the world, but they can't get their best five on for like the final five minutes of the game, um, which is a little bit concerning. Um, and then for Texas Tech... I don't know. Western you kind of found it. They they got an incredible performance from um, what's his name? Something Matthews. Um, I'll find it. If Ken Palm didn't keep maybe log in every three seconds. Come on, come Ken on. Palm. Yeah, Emmett Matthews is a freshman. He had uh, career high twenty eight points. His previous career high was thirteen. Um, he had more made two point field goals eight in this game than he'd attempted in any game this season previously. So. Just, uh, I mean, they didn't even shoot well, um, West Virginia. They shot poorly. I mean, they shot okay from three, uh, but they made a lot of free throws. Uh, 36 of 40 was the free throw shooting in this game for both teams combined. It's pretty good. Oklahoma, we should also have uh, lost. Sorry, West Virginia, we should also have lost. Uh, sorry, beat Oklahoma to get to this game against Texas Tech. Oklahoma now still just given the state of the bubble is comfortably in at a 10 seat on the bracket matrix. Oklahoma and Florida being totally safe, apparently. 
It's really uh, it's a, it's a commentary on the uh, season this year. But I guess that's what happens. You get a couple wins. You play a tough schedule. You're in. Um, Texas, not so lucky. They're looking on the outside, looking in. Um, they lost to Kansas. Kansas, that's the first game I got. First game I watched when I got back from Spain. I got back to my apartment at 5:30. Thanks E Train. Taking 30 minutes to go 10 stops in Queens from John F. Kennedy Airport. Uh, but because <laughs> of track work, I get home. I put on the Kansas game. It was close for a while, and then it was not not my welcome back to live college basketball. That I wanted. With to the see. Iowa State win. They I, shot yeah, really well from they three. Did, huh? Yes, they're they're a good offensive team, but they're they're capable of being da- they're dangerous, but also don't 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 expect to see them on the second weekend. I'm not sold. Um, well. It seems like we could go one or two directions. I guess first, let's update our major conference uh, draft. Um, you know, Tom talked about how he'd been uh, supporting Auburn all year, but yeah, he didn't pick Auburn in the major conference draft, and that might be the uh, the death knell. Yeah, yeah. He, Tom had a good comeback. He, had, you know, he had an early loss for Texas Tech, as as he mentioned. Uh, he had North Carolina losing to Duke, which was not good. Purdue had an early loss. LSU had an early loss. You know, these all could have sunk him, um, but. He got a Iowa State to win the title and Oregon to win the title. Um, especially the Oregon win over Washington meant that entering today, Tom ne- needed and still needs a Tennessee win as the favorite and a Michigan State win as the favorite to come up with the huge 90 to 88 squeaker victory over me. But uh, right now Auburn is up by 22 with 10 minutes to go. At least on my um, Watch ESPN app. Oh um, uh, yeah, 22. So that's not looking good. Yeah, and we should also um, add that. Um, we did not pick a conference champion until the was it the fifth or it was the fifth pick in the draft or possibly yeah. sixth. Well, the first the first four picks were Virginia, Texas Tech, Kentucky, and Washington. Yeah. And those four teams combined to make one conference tournament final and win zero. Yeah. So. And I didn't pick somewhat a, unpredictable week. Yeah. yeah. I didn't pick a champion until the eighth round when I pick Oregon and then my other. Unless champion, Michigan State wins. Yeah. That's true. Yes. They haven't. Yeah. Tennessee's not winning this game. They're down twenty. They have sixteen turnovers to four for Auburn. So not a great that, performance by Tennessee. That's what Auburn does. That's the only way they play defense is by forcing turnovers. You cannot yeah. turn it over. It looks like a major letdown game for Tennessee. Like, yeah. I don't know. They played so well against Kentucky, and they were so locked in. I, I don't know. Anyway, so that's the major conference tournament draft update. Um, let's talk about number one seeds. We have how much time do we have here? We have like 15 minutes. Yeah. Number one seeds. According to Bracket Matrix, as of this morning, and not every bracket was updated, obviously, in order, Virginia, Duke, Gonzaga, North Carolina, number two seeds, in order, Tennessee, Kentucky, Michigan State, and Michigan. Um, If we assume Tennessee loses this game, um, do we think the Michigan State-Michigan winner will get a number one seed? And if if that team does get a number one seed, would they surplant North Carolina or Gonzaga? So everyone agrees Virginia and Duke are locks, and there's some talk now that Duke will be the overall number one seed, uh, which I wouldn't really have Virginia a, twice, I guess. Right, which I wouldn't really have a problem with, but at the same time, so you get into a slippery slope when you start just counting losses without one player. Um, Ken Pomery made a great point on Twitter that you kind of give them a free ride. If they win, they get credit for it. If not, well, it doesn't count. So that's a little tricky. So I, I, guess I, I agree. Yeah, I guess I would hope that Virginia yeah. then is the number one overall seed, just because they had a they had a better season on balance, even though they lost to Duke twice. Then uh, I would say that I would not expect uh, Michigan State to take that number one seed just because so many years you see the bracket and it comes out and they're like, oh, yeah, that game, we, the bracket was done even before the Big Ten championship came. 
they always have the, the uh, selection committee chairmen on CBS at the end of the show, like 640. He's like, oh, yeah, well, we looked at this, this, and this. And like, oh, yeah, no, they were never going to be a number one. Or they were number one no matter what. And I don't think that they're going to move people uh, into it. Um, the only and- thing they could do is switch Michigan and Michigan State. Um, and that, so the only possibility, I think this is unlikely, is that they currently have Michigan State as the last number one, and they would switch Michigan and Michigan State if Michigan wins. But I don't think that's likely to be the case right now. Yeah, I don't see... I don't know. I don't see Michigan State ending up as a one or being a one right now, even. So, yeah, or being or Michigan being close enough where they could right. become a number one seed by beating Michigan State in the title game. Yeah. So I think the number one seeds will be Gonzaga and Carolina. I think Gonzaga was on the precipice for a while, but then Tennessee and Kentucky not winning their conference championships, Texas Tech flaming out, which they don't really have a shot anyway, but it didn't hurt. And then I just thought Michigan and Michigan State were too far past them. The other, the other thing I would ask is, do we think Houston? Uh, with just two losses, I believe, has a case for number two seed at the expense maybe of the uh, Michigan-Michigan State loser, if it's Michigan, I guess. Yeah, I think that Houston should be a number two seed if Michigan loses the title game to Michigan State. I think they probably deserve a number three seed if Michigan State wins. Michigan State has a pretty good resume. Um, Yeah, and then it looks like... Of course, Houston has to win against Cincinnati. Yeah, if Houston be Cincinnati, they've been dominant. Well, actually, they looked pretty uh, shaky down the stretch against Memphis, but Memphis is getting a recall at home, so it's not a huge surprise. Corey Davis is such a monster and, and a man for um, Houston. Look, the three seeds right now in bracket majors, it's Houston, LSU, Florida State, and Texas Tech. Um, I guess that's right. I don't have a big problem with any of those. I don't see a, a huge contender. Um, I think Purdue... Uh, being co-champion of the Big Ten maybe has a thought, but then losing to Minnesota in the conference tournament is a problem. Um, Auburn, I don't think, can do enough to get up to a three, but um, they're the third five entering today. So, And kind of weirdly, Villanova and Marquette are still fives. I, uh, the, the Big East, I guess there's not enough teams, but um, yeah. So... I. Well, I mean, there's also the possibility that something very strange happens, that, like, the committees, the committee does not go to form, and, and they throw, and with the new net and the, a new way of evaluating teams, that they change a lot of things. So I guess we'll find out. The reveal of the top 16 was in one way comforting in February because it, um, it matched what Bracket Matrix had, it matched what people thought, so it didn't seem like a huge departure from what had happened in the past, which some would say is a bad thing if you think that the way the teams are bracketed and seeded should change. But some would say it's a good thing because what you you really want most is predictability and like to know, like, okay, if we do this and we're, we have this kind of resume and this other team has this kind of resume, we'll be ahead of them or behind them. So I kind of prefer knowing that's the case unless you're going to like overtly state in advance that you're changing the way that you're evaluating teams. I agree. And I think that there's, I think, Brendan, you and I have talked at the previous brackets, and you said, I really don't have a problem with the teams they picked, but I do have problems with how they seeded them and the matchups they created. And I think we could see, uh, there's been some talk among the Twitterati about the the selection committee using one metric for selecting the teams and relying more on predictive metrics to seed the teams and place the teams. So we'll see how uh, that works out. But honestly, I don't think you're going to see a radical departure from what you've seen in the years past. I think you'll see some head-scratching seeds from why are they so high or why are they so low. But I think we won't be, it won't be like a total shock uh, when they reveal the brackets. But with this night, you never know. Yeah, two things I would like to see. Uh, one is I would like to see 
more consistent seeding in the five through like 12 lines, which I think has been the biggest problem. It's more like five through maybe 10 have been a huge problems. Teams are just like kind of randomly seeded. And, and there are a lot of five and six or rightful five, six and seven seeds who get seeded in the eight and nine spots end up running to number one seed who could otherwise have like made a nice run. That's one thing. Two, I would like to see when opportunity exists, I know there's a lot going on and a lot of uh, kind of moving pieces. When opportunity exists, I would like to see um, uh, matchups between teams that are in like that mid-major tier versus teams that are in the major tier. I think that's more interesting. It, I'm more interested in seeing, say, uh, Mississippi State versus, um, I don't know, St. Mary's than see Mississippi State versus Ohio State. Like, I'd rather see... Uh, like, for instance, Buffalo's a six seed, right? Or maybe will be a six seed, or a seven, or a five, or something. Same thing with Wofford. I don't want to see Wofford play Utah State. Like, no. I don't want to see Buffalo play VCU, you know? Make them play, have them, have Buffalo play Washington. Have Wofford play Baylor, you know, whatever the matchup is. Now, do you think um, they do that intentionally, or do you think they just do it because they're careless and don't care? I, I think it's um, just not a priority. You know, I, I really think that the committee should only be in charge of um, picking the teams. If they're going to have this role, they should only be in charge of picking the teams and, and then putting them in a S-curve, S like a seed list. And that there should be a, either a computer formula, which wouldn't be that hard, or um, a, a couple or like one or two people who just go through and put them in the right bracket based on location. They know the location of all the schools versus all the sites. They know who's played who in the um, previously or recently in the tournament or in the regular season. Um, and then and then they also make sure to balance it for like the, the the seed ranking so that it's not really imbalanced for one region versus another. And I think part of that should be you should have like you should try to make interesting matchups if you can. I think you could totally program a computer to do this and like. A week max, um, so that you just have the, have the committee, not you or not me, but someone could probably do it in like a, a few hours actually. Um, Once Ken Palm gets past the error that logs him out of the logs you out of his sight every ten minutes, <laughs> maybe he can get to work on this. Yeah, so this is the number two computer science priority in college basketball. One is finding someone who can maybe uh, consult for a few hours pro bono to do activation on KenPalm.com. And two is <laughs> having someone put together a program that can bracket teams better than the NCAA tournament uh, committee has. Um, let's, in, in that case, let's, we only have a few minutes left. Let's talk about the bubble. Yes. Um, the way I see it, you can see up to six teams for four spots looking at bracket matrix, unless, unless it's like an, um, an outlier. And I think if there is a team that is not considered close to the field, that gets in, it's probably Clemson. They're only in 19 brackets of 126. Um, I think that that's a team that we could see get in. They have a good net and a good Ken Palm and a lot of close losses, and they were 9-9 in the ACC. But eliminating Clemson for a second, the teams that are in at least like a quarter of the brackets but not three-quarters of the brackets are basically Temple, St. John's, North Carolina State, and Belmont. You could also throw in Ohio State and Arizona State. Of those six teams, four will get in. Do you think of the two teams that the Brackenmeyers has out, North Carolina State and Belmont, and the two teams that are omitted, or do you think it's two? Uh, I think there are two other teams. Um, I'm looking at the net just to see what they say. I think that the North Carolina State is where are they in the net? Search South Carolina. They're, State. they're pretty good in the net. It's like the 30s, I think. Or 40. Yeah, so they're ahead of then Temple and Belmont. So uh, where are they? NC State. They are 34th. Clemson 35th. Uh, Belmont is 47th. 
and Temple is 54th. So, again, I said earlier I think they're going to rely more on the net than they might have previously. So I wouldn't be surprised to see North Carolina sneak in at the expense of maybe Temple. Uh, Ohio State seems to be destined to play a first four game in Dayton. Good for them, I guess. Um, but I don't know. I, w- I would actually expect to see North Carolina State in the tournament, even though they played that ridiculously soft non-conference schedule. Yeah, I... Um, the net prefers North Carolina State and Belmont, but the like KPI, which is basically trying to move teams up or down based on uh, actual results, prefers St. John's and Temple. I really think it's those four for two spots, really. I wouldn't be surprised if either St. John's or Temple gets left out um, or ends up in Dayton. Neither of those would be surprising to me. Uh, I would say that um, I, I think if I had to make a call between those four, I think they're pretty much even, those four. But if I had to make a call, I'd probably put oh, – sorry, a prediction. I'd probably put St. John's and uh, uh, Temple in, I think. I think that uh, the try to schedule out of conference. North Carolina State will we'll get them, and then you know Belmont could get in. It'd just be a departure from what the committee's done in the past. So, um, what else do we want to talk about before we finish up here? Oh, let's talk about our teams. Um, yeah, you talked about Kansas briefly. Uh, anything else on Kansas and their Big Twelve tournament run? Uh, I think it's kind of what you are gonna see in the um, in the tournament. I think you see a team that's well coached but doesn't uh doesn't uh really have the firepower they're not deep enough you're seeing mitch lightfoot and david mccormick play huge minutes you're seeing frank grimes uh great hashtag when he hit five threes in the first half on friday night the march of grimes but they're just not that deep legerald vick's now officially done for the year um i just don't this is a team that's so kind of meh for kansas i mean a lot of teams would be happy to have it you have dietrich lawson down low playing great but they just don't have the perimeter play to take advantage of that. They just can't shoot threes. Um, they can't shoot free throws particularly well. Uh, and I just, it's not a team you really like look forward to seeing or like seeing, think is particularly dangerous. I think they've underachieved a little bit this year. Obviously, they haven't been helped by injuries and by LeGerald Vick's departure. Um, but at the same time, it's Cedric Lawson and a bunch of perimeter players who have good skills, but none of them include shooting the three. And, they, and Vick, of course, was their best three-point shooter. So it's tough to see a team that already was shooting just 35% on threes, and that includes a lot of Legerald victories doing anything in the tournament. So just kind of uninspiring. They had a very easy draw. They beat Texas and got the fortune of playing West Virginia. Um, and they did not look particularly sharp against Iowa State, who's not a good defensive team, mind you, and they scored only 66 points and only .93 points per possession. So not inspiring, um, but we'll see. Last year's Kansas team wasn't inspiring at all, and they ended up going to the Final Four before getting blown out by the Villanova buzzsaw. This team will not make the Final Four, but maybe they make things interesting. I think best case scenario, they make things interesting against the top seed uh, in a Sweet 16 game that Thursday or Friday night. But that's really best case. Um, In the Big Ten, Northwestern uh, played well but lost in overtime to Illinois in the 12-13 pre-pre-quarters game. Um, They had a lead in the second half uh, as much as five points. Um... But they weren't able to hold on to it. And uh, one guy I wanted to mention. Uh, well, the, the the biggest problem for Northwestern is they just went 13 and 20. Um, 
sorry, 13 and 19, 4 and 16 in conference, and they lose their two best players, Derek Pardon and Vic Law. That's not good for Chris Collins. He better be bringing in some players. Secondly, Georgi Bejanishvili, I'm much better at Sandro Mamukalishvili, but <laughs> Georgi Bejanishvili was the MVP of the game for Illinois. He's a freshman from Rustavi, Georgia. Um, and his. Wait, wait, uh, the his state comps, or the country? Uh, the, the nation. Okay, the good. nation. The nation of Georgia. Georgie from Georgia. Um, and his statistical comps are Tyler Cook, who is currently a senior at um, Iowa and was quite good. Eric Mika, who was a pretty great player at BYU. Marquise Chris, who became a lottery pick. Um, and then Na- Nana Foulard. I don't know who that is, but uh, he went to Bucknell. Okay, not really a relevant comp for us. And then Melson Basabe. He might remember uh, Basabe from his time at Iowa also. So anyway, I think no one's really talking about Georgi Bezanishvili, but he's actually pretty good, and could, and he's a very difficult post player who can score in a variety of ways. Um, and I think part of the next really good Illinois team, which I think is coming in a year or two. Uh, Providence uh, actually played pretty well in Madison Garden. They always tend to play well in New York. Uh, we saw them play St. John's at St. John's in the Garden and play quite well. Um, and they got the draw of Butler in the 8-9 game and blew them out by 23 um, there's a second straight time playing Butler, the second straight time play, scoring 1.2 points per possession. The first time they've done that in consecutive conference games since um, the before the Big East, the new Big East. It's like 2012 or 2013. And the first time they've had back-to-back 11-plus po- uh, three-pointer games since uh, Tim Welsh was the coach. Um, but then against Villanova, the shots didn't fall again, and they had their worst offensive game since uh, the beginning of February. Um, they scored 0.85 points per possession. Ultimately, with this team, which is a very good defensive team, one of the best that, um, maybe the best that Ed Cooley's had, right now they're ranked um, 31st in the country on defense. Only the 2016 team that's ranked 28th is better. Just a, no point guard. And Coach Cooley said it in the post-game press conference. He said, we need to find a point guard. I, you know, some people thought that was a little bit controversial because he had, you know, is he saying he's going to go out and get one? I, I think he meant that he was going to find a point guard among the guys they have on their team. They have a top 50 freshman point guard and a top 50 sophomore point guard uh, out of their classes in David Duke and Makayash and Langford. By the way, you find out which friends are, one, listening to the podcast and, two, watching college basketball when they ping you uh, during the Big East tournament to, to say, is there really a guy on Providence College named David Duke? Yeah. That's a good sign that that person has not been listening to the podcast. Come on. Wow. Um, Re- reverse shout out there. Yeah, that's a reverse shout out. Um, but anyway, I, I do think that this team with almost, they have, the, they have by far the worst point guard play in the Big East. And I looked at the, all the other teams, like in the quarters and the semis, if they had any of the other point guards on any of their teams, they would have been like a top 40 team. So that's how bad their point guard play was between Ash and Langford. Um, and David Duke, and as well as Malik White, who was really a two-guard, who was forced to play some point. He had a great game against Butler, but he's just a, he's not a good ball handler. He's a pretty good scorer. Um, anyway, that are my thoughts on Providence. Before we sign off, I did want to bounce back to one topic that we had some good thoughts on, uh, number ones and number two seeds, and whether it really matters. How, uh, whether there's being number one and number two seeds, is that great? Now, the stat you might hear, Gary Parrish quoted on his podcast earlier this week, is that 41% of number one seeds make the Final Four whereas only 21% of number two seeds make the Final Four. But that's a, a biased stat because we're not talking about um, eight teams, ones and twos, that are exactly equivalent, and the advantage of being seeded one is that much better. We're talking about, in general, ones are, are better than twos, especially the best ones. There's no upper bound on how good a one seed could be. A two seed can only be the fifth, sixth, seventh, or eighth best team in the country unless it's misseeded. So I guess my 
my thought is, this is more on Gonzaga. It looks like now that Tennessee's losing, that they're going to be a number one seed regardless, unless it's like kind of a big surprise. Um, but if Gonzaga were the the top two seed or the last one seed and was matched up against North Carolina, let's say, either way or Tennessee, there really isn't that much of a difference. Is there going to be seed out west no matter what? And I think that it's kind of very marginal. The, the, and people talk about the last number one, number one seeds if it matters that much. And I think you look it back year by year, you don't see that last number one seed generally doing well, whether it's Xavier or they lost second round, Oregon lost in the, in the late eight. Um, I could go back further, maybe talk about when we get further in the tournament. But what are your thoughts on one versus two? I think it does matter to some extent if you're the, the number two seed. Remember uh, in 2016 when Villanova won their first title, it, mm-hmm. it didn't end up hurting them. But they were Kansas was the number one overall seed, if I'm not mistaken, and Villanova were drawn was drawn into their bracket, and they were not the fourth number two seed. So it can protect you from the number one seed. Um, I think 41 and 21% is about what you'd expect. And I don't think it's a commentary on, as you said, on you know the easier path. I think it's just the better teams make it about twice as often. If you had a number one seed and a number two seed play in the regional final, you'd probably pick the number one seed most of the time if the committee does its job. Now, this is all this is saying all things are being equal and they're going to fairly seed the top seed away from the best number two seed, which they don't always do. Duke, which will be number one seed, by the way, a great stat from our Tim Britton. He tweeted last year after Duke lost to Kansas. Duke has not beaten a team seeded better than it in the NCAA tournament since 1994. Now, of course, that itself is, is deceiving because Duke is probably number one seed at least 10 times since then, if not more. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, um, or a number two. They don't have that many opportunities. playing a number one yeah. until like the Elite Eight or something yeah. like that. So it's hard to uh, it's hard. They don't have that many opportunities, but it is kind of crazy. A team that good is just never really never really punched above its seed uh, when given the chance. Um, but I don't think it matters that much. I think we'll see. Um, I think honestly, the biggest debate right now is going to be the two versus three with Houston, which is fourth in the net. Um, will they get in there? Um, again, you play your one seed, you play the four in the Sweet 16, then you. It's not like you get a home game in the regional final. So uh, we'll see. I think that I think the four, the one seeds are probably pretty set, and I don't think it makes too much difference. Um, the one versus two pairings, I think, could be interesting, but I don't really think it's a big deal. Who gets the one? Who gets yep. the two? And we'll talk about those pairings tomorrow night. We're planning to do our NCAA tournament preview. We'll probably spend a few minutes on the NCAA tournament, but mostly on Providence's hopeful NIT selection. Yeah, we'll go through that whole so, thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll spend a lot of time on that. By the way, but, um, I just yeah. want to say, like, we were a little worried we wanted this content wouldn't be you know, good past the selection show. But when you spend uh, a solid minute on Georgie Bejhanashvili... That content will live on for at least another year. That's so, evergreen. Yeah, that is definitely the definition of evergreen content. So good job. Yeah, that's that's, that's going to be in the clips. Yeah, that's yeah. going to be in our clip segment when uh, in in 37 years when we do our uh, 85 millionth podcast. One last note on uh, Duke 1994. Uh, we got to bring it back to Providence uh, that year. Uh, Glenn Robinson and, and Purdue was number one seed. Um, of course, Gene Katie never made a Final Four at Purdue. That was maybe his best shot. Or he also had a really good shot. I think in 1988. A couple other times, but uh, seated in that region was Rick Barnes and Providence in his final game at Providence. They lost to Alabama in the 8-9 game, and then Alabama lost to Purdue in the subsequent round. So Providence could have played Purdue, and if Providence played Purdue, they probably would have beaten them, and then Duke would have not knocked off a seed higher than them again that year on their way to the, to the National Championship game. It all comes back to Providence. Yeah. Now that said, 
would you come back to us tomorrow night after we post? Uh, follow us on at, at Double Bonus Pod on Twitter. DoubleBonusPod.com is our website. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review on Apple. Uh, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play Music, and Spotify. Also on Podbean. So we now have uh, two, uh, three hours and four minutes until Selection Sunday, uh, Selection Show. So uh, get ready, get excited, get your uh, your Sharpies ready um, if you want to be like Seth Davis. <laughs> and uh, and we'll, we'll talk to you next time.